we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Urgency of Change. This week's podcast continues Terence Stamp's reading of the classic book, Commentaries on Living. Most of these readings have never been heard before. Next week's podcast features a conversation with Linda Strawn titled, We Live in Conflict with Everything. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Our official YouTube channel has hundreds of video and audio recordings of full talks and carefully chosen extracts. We are a non-profit charity and rely on your support to continue to preserve and make Krishnamurti's work available. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider leaving a review. Terence Stamp is an Oscar-nominated actor known for his roles in The Limey, Superman, The Collector, Wall Street and many others. It was through working with Fellini that he met and became friends with Krishnamurti. Stamp includes his experiences with Krishnamurti in his recent memoir, The Ocean Fell Into the Drop. Commentaries on Living is one of Krishnamurti's most well-known and best-loved books. In it, he recalls many of the private conversations with those who came to see him. With encouragement from Aldous Huxley, these meetings were written down by Krishnamurti and published in 1956. Two further volumes were published in 1958 and 1960. Chapters included in this episode are titled The Known and the Unknown, The Search for Truth, Sensitivity, The Individual and Society, The Self, and Belief. The Known and the Unknown. The long evening shadows were over the still waters, and the river was becoming quiet after the day. Fish were jumping out of the water, and the heavy birds were coming to roost among the big trees. There was not a cloud in the sky which was silver blue. A boat full of people came down the river. They were singing and clapping, and a cow called in the distance. There was the scent of evening. A garland of marigold was moving with the water, which sparkled in the setting sun. How beautiful and alive it all was. The river, the birds, the trees, and the villagers. We were sitting under a tree overlooking the river, Near the tree was a small temple, and a few lean cows wandered about. The temple was clean and well swept, and the flowering bush was watered and cared for. A man was performing his evening rituals, and his voice was patient and sorrowful. Under the last rays of the sun, the water was the colour of newborn flowers. 
Presently someone joined us and began to talk of his experiences. He said he had devoted many years of his life to the search for God, had practised many austerities and renounced many things that were dear. He had also helped considerably in social work, in building a school and so on. He was interested in many things, but his consuming interest was the finding of God. And now, after many years, his voice was being heard, and it guided him in little as well as big things. He had no will of his own, but followed the inner voice of God. It never failed him, though he often corrupted its clarity. His prayer was ever for the purification of the vessel, that it might be worthy to receive. Can that which is immeasurable be found by you and me? Can that which is not of time be searched out by that thing which is fashioned of time? Can a diligently practised discipline lead us to the unknown? Is there a means to that which has no beginning and no end? Can that reality be caught in the net of our desires? What we capture is the projection of the known, but the unknown cannot be captured by the known. That which is named is not unnameable, and by naming we only awaken the conditioned responses. These responses, however noble and pleasant, are not of the real. We respond to stimulants, but reality offers no stimulant. It is. The mind moves from the known to the known, and it cannot reach out into the unknown. You cannot think of something you do not know. It is impossible. What you think about comes out of the known, the past, whether that past be remote or the second that has just gone by. This past is thought, shaped and conditioned by many influences, modifying itself according to circumstances and pressures, but ever remaining a process of time. Thought can only deny or assert. It cannot discover or search out the new. Thought cannot come upon the new. But when thought is silent, then there may be the new, which is immediately transformed into the old, into the experienced by thought. Thought is ever shaping, modifying, colouring according to a pattern of experience. The function of thought is to communicate, but not to be in the state of experiencing. When experiencing ceases, then thought takes over and terms it within the category of the known. Thought cannot penetrate into the unknown, and so it can never discover or experience reality. Disciplines, renunciations, detachment, rituals, the practice of virtue, all these, however noble, are the process of thought. And thought can only work towards an end, towards an achievement which is ever the known. Achievement is security, the self-protective certainty of the known. To seek security in that which is nameless is to deny it. The security that may be found is only in the projection of the past, of the known. For this reason, the mind must be entirely and deeply silent. 
but this silence cannot be purchased through sacrifice, sublimation or suppression. This silence comes when the mind is no longer seeking, no longer caught in the process of becoming. This silence is not cumulative. It may not be built up through practice. The silence must be as unknown to the mind as the timeless. For if the mind experiences the silence, then there is the experiencer, who is the result of past experiences, who is cognizant of a past silence. And what is experienced by the experiencer is merely a self-projected repetition. The mind can never experience the new, and so the mind must be utterly still. The mind can be still only when it is not experiencing, that is, when it is not terming or naming, recording or storing up in memory. This naming and recording is a constant process of the different layers of consciousness, not merely of the upper mind. But when the superficial mind is quiet, the deeper mind can offer up its intimations. When the whole consciousness is silent and tranquil, free from all becoming, which is spontaneity, then only does the immeasurable come into being. The desire to maintain this freedom gives continuity to the memory of the becomer, which is a hindrance to reality. Reality has no continuity. It is from moment to moment, ever new, ever fresh. What has continuity can never be creative. The upper mind is only an instrument of communication. It cannot measure that which is immeasurable. Reality is not to be spoken of, and when it is, it is no longer reality. This is meditation. The search for truth. He had come a very long way, many thousands of miles by boat and plane. He spoke only his own language, and with the greatest of difficulties was adjusting himself to this new and disturbing environment. He was entirely unaccustomed to this kind of food and to this climate. Having been born and bred in a very high altitude, the damp heat was telling on him. He was a well-read man, a scientist of sorts, and had done some writing. He seemed to be well acquainted with both Eastern and Western philosophies and had been a Roman Catholic. He said he had been dissatisfied with all this for a long time, but had carried on because of his family. His marriage was what could have been considered a happy one, and he loved his two children. They were in college now in that faraway country and had a bright future. But this dissatisfaction with regard to his life and action had been steadily increasing through the years, and a few months ago it had reached a crisis. He had left his family, making all the necessary arrangements for his wife and children, and now here he was. He had just enough money to carry on, and had come to find God. He said that he was in no way unbalanced and was clear in his purpose. Balance is not a matter to be judged by the frustrated or by those who are successful. The successful may be the unbalanced and the frustrated become bitter and cynical or they find an escape through some self-projected illusion. Balance is not in the hands of the analysts to fit into the norm does not necessarily indicate balance. The norm itself may be the product of an unbalanced culture. 
an acquisitive society with its patterns and norms is unbalanced, whether it is of the left or of the right, whether its acquisitiveness is vested in the state or in its citizens. Balance is non-acquisitiveness. The idea of balance and non-balance is still within the field of thought and so cannot be the judge. Thought itself, the conditioned response with its standards and judgments, is not true. Truth is not an idea, a conclusion. Is God to be found by seeking him out? Can you search after the unknowable? To find, you must know what you are seeking. If you seek to find, what you find will be a self-projection. It will be what you desire, and the creation of desire is not truth. To seek truth is to deny it. Truth has no fixed abode. There is no path, no guide to it, and the word is not truth. Is truth to be found in a particular setting, in a special climate, among certain people? Is it here and not there? Is that one the guide to truth and not another? Is there a guide at all? When truth is sought, what is found can only come out of ignorance, for the search itself is born of ignorance. You cannot search out reality. You must cease for reality to be. But can I not find the nameless? I have come to this country because here there is a greater feeling for that search. Physically, one can be more free here. One needs not to have so many things. Possessions do not overpower one here as elsewhere. This is partly why one goes to a monastery. But there are psychological escapes in going to a monastery. And as I do not want to escape into ordered isolation, I am here living my life to find the nameless. Am I capable of finding it? Is it a matter of capacity? Does not capacity imply the following of a particular course of action, a predetermined path with all the necessary adjustments? When you ask that question, are you not asking whether you, an ordinary individual, have the necessary means of gaining what you long for? Surely your question implies that only the exceptional find truth and not the everyday man. Is truth granted only to the few, to the exceptionally intelligent? Why do we ask whether we are capable of finding it? We have the pattern, the example of the man who is supposed to have discovered truth, and the example being elevated far above us creates uncertainty in ourselves. The example thus assumes great significance, and there is a competition between the example and ourselves. We also long to be the record-breaker. Does not this question, have I the capacity, arise out of one's conscious or unconscious comparison of what one is with what one supposes the example to be? Why do we compare ourselves with the ideal? And does comparison bring understanding? Is the ideal different from ourselves? Is it not a self-projection, a homemade thing? And does it not therefore prevent the understanding of ourselves as we are? Is not comparison an evasion of the understanding of ourselves? There are so many ways of escaping from ourselves. And comparison is one of them. 
Surely, without the understanding of oneself, the search for so-called reality is an escape from oneself. Without self-knowledge, the God that you seek is the God of illusion, and illusion inevitably brings conflict and sorrow. Without self-knowledge, there can be no right thinking, and then all knowledge is ignorance, which can only lead to confusion and destruction. Self-knowledge is not an ultimate end. It is the only opening wedge to the inexhaustible. Is not self-knowledge extremely difficult to acquire, and will it not take a very long time? The very conception that self-knowledge is difficult to acquire is a hindrance to self-knowledge. If I may suggest, do not suppose that it will be difficult or that it will take time. Do not predetermine what it is and what it is not. Begin. Self-knowledge is to be discovered in the action of relationship. And all action is relationship. Self-knowledge does not come about through self-isolation, through withdrawal. The denial of relationship is death. Death is the ultimate resistance. Resistance, which is suppression, substitution or sublimation in any form, is a hindrance to the flow of self-knowledge. But resistance is to be discovered in relationship, in action. Resistance whether negative or positive, with its comparisons and justifications, its condemnations and identifications, is the denial of what is. What is, is the implicit, and awareness of the implicit, without any choice, is the unfoldment of it. This unfoldment is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is essential for the coming into being of the unknown, the inexhaustible. Sensitivity. It was a lovely garden with sunken lawns and old shady trees. The house was large with spacious rooms, airy and well-proportioned. The trees gave shelter to many birds and many squirrels and to the fountain came birds of every size, sometimes eagles, but mostly crows sparrows and noisy parrots. The house and garden were secluded, the more so as they were enclosed within high white walls. It was pleasant within those walls, and beyond them was the noise of the road and the village. The road passed the gates, and a few yards along that road was the village, on the outskirts of a large town. The village was foul, with open gutters along its main narrow lane. The houses were thatched, the front steps decorated, and children were playing in the lane. Some weavers had stretched out long strands of gay-coloured threads to make cloth, and a group of children were watching them at work. It was a cheerful scene, bright, noisy and smelly. The villagers were freshly washed, and they had very little on, for the climate was warm. Towards evening, some of them got drunk and became loud and rough. It was only a thin wall that separated the lovely garden from the pulsating village. To deny ugliness 
and to hold to beauty is to be insensitive. The cultivation of the opposite must ever narrow the mind and limit the heart. Virtue is not an opposite, and if it has an opposite, it ceases to be virtue. To be aware of the beauty of that village is to be sensitive to the green flowering garden. We want to be aware only of beauty, and we shut ourselves off from that which is not beautiful. This suppression merely breeds insensitivity. It does not bring about the appreciation of beauty. The good is not in the garden, away from the village, but in the sensitivity that lies beyond both. To deny or to identify leads to narrowness which is to be insensitive. Sensitivity is not a thing to be carefully nurtured by the mind, which can only divide and dominate. There is good and evil, but to pursue the one and to avoid the other does not lead to that sensitivity which is essential for the being of reality. Reality is not the opposite of illusion, of the false and if you try to approach it as an opposite, it will never come into being. Reality can be only when the opposites cease. To condemn or identify breeds the conflict of the opposites, and conflict only engenders further conflict. A fact approached unemotionally without denying or justifying does not bring about conflict. A fact in itself has no opposite. It has an opposite only when there is a pleasurable or defensive attitude. It is this attitude that builds the walls of insensitivity and destroys action. If we prefer to remain in the garden, there is a resistance to the village. And where there is resistance, there can be no action, either in the garden or towards the village. There may be activity, but not action. Activity is based on an idea, and action is not. Ideas have opposites, and movement within the opposites is mere activity, however prolonged or modified. Activity can never be liberating. Activity has a past and a future, but action has not. Action is always in the present, and is therefore immediate. Reform is activity, not action, and what is reformed needs further reform. Reformation is inaction, an activity born as an opposite. Action is from moment to moment, and oddly enough, it has no inherent contradiction, but activity, though it may appear to be without a break, is full of contradiction. The activity of revolution is riddled with contradictions, and so can never liberate. Conflict, choice, can never be a liberating factor. If there is choice, there is activity and not action, for choice is based on idea. Mind can indulge in activity, but it cannot act. Action springs from quite a different source. The moon came up over the village, making shadows across the garden. The Individual and Society We were walking along a crowded street, 
The sidewalks were heavy with people and the smell of exhaust from the cars and buses filled our nostrils. The shops displayed mostly costly and shoddy things. The sky was pale silver and it was pleasant in the dark as we came out of the noisy thoroughfare. We went deeper into the park and sat down. He was saying that the state, with its militarization and legislation, was absorbing the individual almost everywhere, and that worship of the state was now taking the place of the worship of God. In most countries, the state was penetrating into the very intimate lives of its people. They were being told what to read and what to think. The state was spying upon its citizens, keeping a divine eye on them, taking over the function of the church. It was the new religion. Man used to be a slave to the church, but was now a slave of the state. Before it was the church, and now it was the state that controlled his education, and neither was concerned with the liberation of man. What is the relationship? of the individual to society. Obviously, society exists for the individual and not the other way round. Society exists for the fruition of man. It exists to give freedom to the individual so that he may have the opportunity to awaken the highest intelligence. This intelligence is not the mere cultivation of a technique or of knowledge. It is to be in touch with that creative reality which is not of the superficial mind. Intelligence is not a cumulative result, but freedom from progressive achievement and success. Intelligence is never static. It cannot be copied and standardized, and hence cannot be taught. Intelligence is to be discovered in freedom. The collective will and its action, which is society, does not offer this freedom to the individual. For society, not being organic, is ever static. Society is made up, put together for the convenience of man. It has no independent mechanism of its own. Men may capture society, guide it, shape it, tyrannise over it, depending upon their psychological states, but society is not the master of man. It may influence him, but man always breaks it down. There is conflict between man and society because man is in conflict within himself. And the conflict is between that which is static and that which is living. Society is the outward expression of man. The conflict between himself and society is the conflict within himself. This conflict within and without will ever exist until the highest intelligence is awakened. We are social entities as well as individuals. We are citizens as well as men separate becomers in sorrow and pleasure. If there is to be peace, we have to understand the right relationship between the man and the citizen. Of course, the state would prefer us to be entirely citizens, but that is the stupidity of governments. We ourselves would like to hand over the man to the citizen. For to be a citizen is easier than to be a man. To be a good citizen is to function efficiently within the pattern of a given society. Efficiency and conformity are demanded of the citizen as they toughen him, make him ruthless, and then he is capable of sacrificing the man to the citizen. A good citizen is not necessarily a good man, but a good man is bound to be a right citizen, not of any particular society or country. 
because he is primarily a good man, his actions will not be antisocial. He will not be against another man. He will live in cooperation with other good men. He will not seek authority, for he has no authority. He will be capable of efficiency without its ruthlessness. The citizen attempts to sacrifice the man. But the man who is searching out the highest intelligence will naturally shun the stupidities of the citizen. So the state will be against the good man, the man of intelligence. But such a man is free from all governments and countries. The intelligent man will bring about a good society, but a good citizen will not give birth to a society in which man can be of the highest intelligence. The conflict between the citizen and the man is inevitable if the citizen predominates, and any society which deliberately disregards the man is doomed. There is reconciliation between the citizen and the man only when the psychological process of man is understood. The state, the present society, is not concerned with the inner man, but only with the outer man, the citizen. It may deny the inner man, but he always overcomes the outer, destroying the plans cunningly devised for the citizen. The state sacrifices the present for the future ever safeguarding itself for the future. It regards the future as all-important and not the present. But to the intelligent man, the present is of the highest importance, the now, and not the tomorrow. What is can be understood only with the fading of tomorrow. The understanding of what is brings about transformation in the immediate present. It is this transformation that is of supreme importance and not how to reconcile the citizen with the man. When this transformation takes place, the conflict between the man and the citizen ceases. The Self In the opposite seat sat a man of position and authority. He was well aware of this, for his looks, his gestures, his attitude proclaimed his importance. He was very high up in the government, and the people about him were very obsequious. He was saying in a loud voice to somebody that it was outrageous to disturb him about some minor official task. He was rumbling about the doings of his workers, and the listeners looked nervous and apprehensive. We were flying far above the clouds. 18,000 feet, and through the gaps in the clouds was the blue sea. When the clouds somewhat opened up, there were the mountains covered with snow, the islands and the wide open bays. How far away and how beautiful were the solitary houses and the small villages. A river came down to the sea from the mountains. It flowed past a very large town, smoky and dull, where its waters became polluted, but a little farther on they were again clean and sparkling. A few seats away was an officer in uniform, his chest covered with ribbons, confident and aloof. He belonged to a separate class that exists all over the world. Why is it that we crave to be recognised, to be made much of, to be encouraged? Why is it that we are such snobs, 
Why is it that we cling to our exclusiveness of name, position, acquisition? Is anonymity degrading and to be unknown despicable? Why do we pursue the famous, the popular? Why is it that we're not content to be ourselves? Are we frightened and ashamed of what we are? that name, position and acquisition become so all-important? It is curious how strong is the desire to be recognised, to be applauded. In the excitement of a battle, one does incredible things for which one is honoured. One becomes a hero for killing a fellow man. Through privilege, cleverness or capacity and efficiency, one arrives somewhere near the top. Though the top is never the top, for there is always more and more in the intoxication of success. The country or the business is yourself. On you depend the issues. You are the power. Organised religion offers position, prestige and honour. There too you are somebody, a part and important. Or again, you become the disciple of a teacher, of a guru or master, or you cooperate with them in their work. You are still important. You represent them. You share their responsibility. You give and others receive. Though in their name, you are still the means. You may put on a loincloth or a monk's robe, but it is you who are making the gesture. It is you who are renouncing. In one way or another, subtly or grossly, the self is nourished and sustained. Apart from its antisocial and harmful activities, why has the self to maintain itself? Though we are in turmoil and sorrow with passing pleasures, why does the self cling to outer and inner gratifications, to pursuits that inevitably bring pain and misery? The thirst for positive activity as opposed to negation makes us strive to be. Our striving makes us feel that we are alive, that there is purpose to our lives, that we shall progressively throw off the causes of conflict and sorrow. We feel that if our activity stopped, we would be nothing, we would be lost, life would have no meaning at all. So we keep going in conflict, in confusion, in antagonism. But we are also aware that there is something more, that there is an otherness which is above and beyond all this misery. Thus, we are in constant battle within ourselves. The greater the outward show, the greater the inward poverty. But freedom from this poverty is not the loincloth. The cause of this inward emptiness is the desire to become. And, do what you will, this emptiness can never be filled. You may escape from it in a crude way or with refinement, but it is as near to you as your shadow. You may not want to look into this emptiness, but nevertheless, it is there. The adornments and the renunciations that the self assumes can never cover this inward poverty. By its activities, inner and outer, the self tries to find enrichment, calling it experience, 
or giving it a different name according to its convenience and gratification. The self can never be anonymous. It may take on a new robe, assume a different name, but identity is its very substance. This identifying process prevents the awareness of its own nature. The cumulative process of identification builds up the self, positively or negatively, and its activity is always self-enclosing, however wide the enclosure. Every effort of the self to be or not to be is a movement away from what it is. Apart from its name, attributes, idiosyncrasies, possessions, what is the self? Is there the I, the self, when its qualities are taken away? It is this fear of being nothing that drives the self into activity. But it is nothing. It is an emptiness. If we're able to face that emptiness, to be with that aching loneliness, then fear altogether disappears and a fundamental transformation takes place. For this to happen, there must be the experiencing of that nothingness which is prevented if there is an experiencer. If there is a desire for the experiencing of that emptiness in order to overcome it, to go above and beyond it, then there is no experiencing, for the self as an identity continues. If the experiencer has an experience, there is no longer the state of experiencing. It is the experiencing of what is, without naming it, that brings about freedom from what is. Belief. We were high up in the mountains and it was very dry. There had been no rain for many months and the little streams were silent. The pine trees were turning brown and some were already dead, but the wind was among them. The mountains stretched out, fold after fold, to the horizon. Most of the wildlife had gone away to cooler and better pastures. Only the squirrels and a few jays remained. There were other smaller birds, but they were silent during the day. A dead pine was bleached white after many summers. It was beautiful, even in death. Graceful and strong, without the blur of sentiment. The earth was hard, and the paths were rocky and dusty. She said that she had belonged to several religious societies but had finally settled down in one. She had worked for it as a lecturer and propagandist practically all over the world. She said she had given up family, comfort and a great many other things for the sake of this organisation. She had accepted its beliefs, its doctrines and precepts, had followed its leaders and tried to meditate. She was regarded highly by the members as well as by the leaders. Now, she continued, having heard what I said about beliefs, organisations, the dangers of self-deception and so on, she had withdrawn from the organisation and its activities. She was no longer interested in saving the world, but was occupying herself with her small family and its troubles and took only a distant interest in the troubled world. She was inclined to be bitter, though outwardly kind and generous, for she said her life seemed so wasted. 
after all her past enthusiasm and work, where was she? What had happened to her? Why was she so dull and weary, and at her age so concerned with trivial things? How easily we destroy the delicate sensitivity of our being. The incessant strife and struggle, the anxious escapes and fears soon dull the mind and the heart, and the cunning mind quickly finds substitutes for the sensitivity of life. Amusements, family, politics, beliefs and gods take the place of clarity and love. Clarity is lost by knowledge and belief, and love by sensations. Does belief bring clarity? Does the tightly enclosing wall of belief bring understanding? What is the necessity of beliefs? And do they not darken the already crowded mind? The understanding of what is does not demand beliefs, but direct perception, which is to be directly aware without the interference of desire. It is desire that makes for confusion, and belief is the extension of desire. The ways of desire are subtle, and without understanding them, belief only increases conflict, confusion and antagonism. The other name for belief is faith, and faith is also the refuge of desire. We turn to belief as a means of action. Belief gives us that peculiar strength which comes from exclusion, and as most of us are concerned with doing, belief becomes a necessity. We feel we cannot act without belief, because it is belief that gives us something to live for, to work for. To most of us, life has no meaning but that which belief gives it. Belief has greater significance than life. We think that life must be lived in the pattern of belief, for without a pattern of some kind, how can there be action? So, our action is based on idea, or is the outcome of an idea, and action, then, is not as important as idea. Can the things of the mind, however brilliant and subtle, ever bring about the completeness of action, a radical transformation in one's being, and so in the social order? Is idea the means of action? Idea may bring about a certain series of actions, but that is mere activity, and activity is wholly different from action. It is in this activity that one is caught, and when for some reason or other activity stops, then one feels lost, and life becomes meaningless, empty. We are aware of this emptiness, consciously or unconsciously, and so idea and activity become all-important. We fill this emptiness with belief, and activity becomes an intoxicating necessity. For the sake of this activity, we will renounce, we will adjust ourselves to any inconvenience, to any illusion. The activity of belief is confusing and destructive. It may at first seem orderly and constructive, but in its wake there is conflict and misery. Every kind of belief, religious or political, prevents the understanding of relationship, and there can be no action without this understanding.